Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a day together with our beloved brothers and sisters. And may we open our hearts to your word. We pray that you would change us as we believe the truth that we find in your word. And may we be obedient sons and daughters. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully we get to the issue of discipline. That's from Hebrews 12, but I'm going to do Peter first because I've been pushing the Peter passages off the end of my PowerPoints for so many weeks. I felt it's time to actually address them. So we'll do the worship, acceptable worship, some more of that, which we did last week, and then we'll go to Peter and then if we got time, we'll go back to Hebrews and deal with the issue of discipline. Hebrews 12, 28, if you want to turn to that with me. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Now, the passages before this referenced Haggai in Psalm 95 and Psalm 92 about the shaking, okay, the cataclysmic end time shaking. But though there is a cataclysmic future shaking, Hebrews 12, 26, and 27, we have received that which is from God and therefore cannot be shaken, cannot be shaken. And the implication is that as believers, our faith and our worship is such that we should not and need not be shaken. We need to not throw away our confidence. We looked at that, I believe, last week. We need to offer up acceptable worship to God, and I'll talk about that here momentarily. And the implications of what's taught in Hebrews are rather earth-shattering, especially if you were a first-century Jew. I'm assuming, and I think it's a very safe assumption, looking at the context of Hebrews, that the temple was still standing, that the worship of, of the high priest and the ordinary sacrifices were going on. The glory of the second temple was visible to anyone who wanted to go to Jerusalem and the surfaces were happening. So when it says in Hebrews 11:1, 1, faith is the evidence of things not seen. And I was talking about the promises of God. If you wanted to look at the church the believers that gathered together in house churches, what they had externally looked pretty pathetic compared to what their non-Christian Jewish brothers had, the fellow Jews, because they had the temple and its services. The little house church had nothing that looked ostentatious, but just gathering for prayer for praise, fellowship, and so on. And we'll see that as we talk about this here. But what they have, according to the author of Hebrews, that the Jews didn't have is a cleansed conscience. See, the cleansings had to continually go on under the law. They were continually becoming unclean, and they had to continually be cleansed. But the cleansing that God does, and we looked at this earlier in Hebrews 9, is an inner cleansing, the cleansing of the conscience, and therefore it's a decisive cleansing. It's done once for all. And, th- and from then on, believers are those who can offer up acceptable worship to God, and God will receive that as they offer it up. Okay? So we have a kingdom which cannot be shaken, and we ought to be thankful people. Rather than complaining, well, we don't really have a fancy building. 
We don't have any special garb like the high priest has. We don't have all the things that our Jewish compatriots have. And they mock us because we're so pathetic. Well, we have. We should still be thankful. We should be thankful people and show gratitude to God for what we have. And here's why. We have gratitude whereby we can offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. So we should be thankful even though there's future judgment coming. Now the word for acceptable service is very important. And let me pull out a little Greek here because it's going to help us. We often think that the passage in Peter about the royal priesthood is the only passage in the New Testament about the priesthood of every believer. But that's not the case. And what we have here is another passage that teaches the priesthood of every believer. But it wouldn't be apparent to us just looking at an English translation. Once we look into the Greek, we see that the word used for acceptable service, latruin, has connotations of priestly service. It means the kind of service done in the tabernacle in the Old Testament or in the temple in the, when it was rebuilt. And it was used earlier in Hebrews, in Hebrews 8, 5, in Hebrews 9, 9, the same word, later in Hebrews 13, 10. And the, the profundity of this is so great because what it is saying is that all believers can work, offer up to God. Notice the term offer up or offer to God. Again, priestly service, acceptable service like the priest would be able to do if he did everything correctly. In other words, if he went through all of the prescribed things that were needed for him to be clean and ready to go serve in the temple, then his service would be acceptable. But he had to go through the prescriptions laid out in the book of Leviticus and elsewhere. What we're finding here in Hebrews is that there's been decisive purgation. Remember that term from last week? Decisive purgation. What that means is what they had to do over and over and over again, and they better get it right. God has done once for all in Christ, and we are clean. We are cleansed. We are in a state of being able to offer to God acceptable service, and we don't have to fear that we're going to die or that God's going to reject it or that we're not going to be good enough or whatever. In other words, this word, la truane, means priestly service, and it can be offered by all believers, and it is accepted of God. It's used in Hebrews 9, 14 of Christians. They are now capable of the worship and service of God that only the high priest would have been under certain circumstances. Their consciences... Let me read Lane here. Their consciences have been purged of defilement. Every impediment to worship has been removed by the sacrificial action of Christ in offering himself to God as an unblemished sacrifice. A fully adequate basis for the response of grateful worship, therefore, has been Provided, unquote, William Lane's commentary on Hebrews. Now, this maybe doesn't seem like a big deal, or maybe some Christians think, well, that's some technical thing for egghead Christians who want to know too much or spend too much time in seminary. No, this is given to all of us. This is Bible. This is Scripture, okay? This isn't just something out of a systematic theology book, this is profound. This is an earth-shattering change 
from what they were used to before, and they needed to be encouraged in this because now they know that their worship is acceptable to God. And it's the job of Christian teachers to teach this and to comfort the hearts and minds of the Christians. So many love to browbeat the Christians and try to convince them that they're not acceptable. God is unhappy with you. You better do more and try harder. That's not what this says. It says that each one of us can offer acceptable service like a priest. So here we have the priesthood of every believer, not just in Peter, but in Hebrews. Because that word connotates priestly service, the priesthood of every believer. Why is that doctrine so important? As I've read Luther a lot since I started teaching Galatians, and I continue to read Luther, he emphasized the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. Why? Because if those things are true, the religious authorities can't pound on the Christians and convince them they're no good. We're the priests. We're the ministers. You have to come to us and do what we say or God is not going to accept you. And Luther wanted every Christian to know that they could offer up acceptable worship. And that's exactly what it says here. It says in Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So my dear friends, be comforted, be assured, and know for certain that your worship service is acceptable to God. Isn't that great? Don't let somebody say, no, you're not good enough. You didn't do it right. Let's go on into Hebrews 13 doing a little walk through Hebrews the last few weeks when I've taught. Hebrews 13. Now here's a let us, that's his way, the author of Hebrews, to tell us what we should do. Here's what we should do. Because of all these things that we've learned in Hebrews, here's what we should do. Let us, okay? Through him, then, let us, Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So let me stop there. If we're all priests, we can do acceptable priestly service. Then we all have a sacrifice to give. We don't have to wait for it to be done by the high priest on the day of atonement. It's been done once for all by Christ, where he offered decisive purgation, to use Lane's term. But what do we have to offer? Here it says, praise to God. God is pleased as we come to praise him. And notice it's, it's a, a sacrifice. So we're doing our priestly service by the act of praising God for what he's done for us in Christ. I, for one, believe that the majority of our worship should always focus on what God has done for us. Not that we can't occasionally pledge certain things, but I really do like worship that's focused on what God's done for us. I, I was in my truck thinking, what do I want to listen to next when I'm on my way to the fishing lake? And I found an old CD and, uh, that was up in my visor. Do you do that too? Stick CDs up in your visor. And I hadn't listened to it, I don't know, for how many years. It said on it, 2005, it was uh, songs uh, from a group that was associated with Sovereign Grace. But it was so, some of those songs we used to do. And we had an outreach band that played some of these. And there were 15 songs on there. Almost every one was about what God has done for us. Okay? And uh, how God has... One of them was across the great divide. And then it recounts what God did to bridge the gap between us and him. And I really love hearing about what God's done for us. Now, we can offer up praise to God for the forgiveness of sins, for the fact that he put us into the body of Christ, 
the fact that he gave us many great and precious promises by, that by them we might escape the corruption in the world, be partakers of the divine nature, and so on and so forth. Not that we can't hit other topics that are biblical, but this is what we do because we're of the priesthood of every believer. We praise. We sing to the Lord. We worship the Lord. And that's what we do. Thank God for that. I got some quotes from Lane. Well, let me go on to the passage. He makes it very clear what, what he means. Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So now we're a priesthood offering worship. It's a sacrifice that God's pleased with. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So notice the point of giving thanks is thanking God for what he's done. Now, uh, isn't this outstanding? Wow. So the Bible does tell us about what's acceptable worship. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. I was talking to somebody on the phone. I don't know. Maybe it was Eric or maybe it was my daughter. I don't remember what, but it was about worship. And I was thinking about the book of Revelation. You know, those who are not wanting to hear what God has done for us, but they want to have 10 action steps of what we're going to do to make the world a better place to live in. I'm wondering what they're going to do about heaven. Because it's going to be a real bummer when they get to heaven and there aren't any sinners and there aren't any problems and they're around the throne praising God. And when we read Revelation, we can see what they were singing about. The lamb who was slain, who with his blood purchased men from every tribe and tongue. And they're singing about that in heaven. If we can't stand that topic, what are we going to do in heaven? You're going to get tired of it? Well, why can't we do something more practical? That's what you hear. You don't want to praise God for what he's done. Well, you're not going to like heaven. And it says in here that we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And if we're going to be singing to the Lamb of God who saved us in heaven, I think we can do it now as a little foretaste. We can join the saints that are already glorified. We don't, we don't see them and hear them. So consecration to God is through Jesus' blood. And it's both, according to Lane, the ground of praise and the condition for its acceptance by God. We know God accepts it because it says so right here. And then it comes up with this one I have in green. Do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So there's two aspects to our priestly service that's acceptable to God. The fruit of our lips praised God in our service to care for one another in the body of Christ, to do good and to share. Didn't we learn in the book of Galatians that the law of Christ is that we bear one another's burdens? And this doesn't necessarily look exciting. It's kind of ordinary, caring for people in their time of need. But that's what is acceptable to God, doing good and sharing. God is pleased with these sacrifices. Let me quote Lane yet again. In the course of the argument, says Lane, the exhortation to Christian discipleship is augmented by the conception of the Christian life as worship. In verses 15 and 16, consecration to God through Jesus' sacrificial death provides the church with the ground for cultivating the concept of life as devotion to God. True worship consists in praise of God and a shared life of love. You see, my dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, the basic things that are essential, central, necessary, and profound in the Christian life are really quite simple. This isn't something you have to have a PhD in theology. This is right there where the rubber meets the road. Can we indeed offer praise to God? 
can we by love serve one another and do good wherever we might go? Now let me continue to read Lane, back to Lane, addressing Hellenistic Jewish Christians. What does he mean by that? Let me unpack that, Hellenistic Jewish Christians. You see, the book of Hebrews is written in very sophisticated and advanced Greek. Not only do the concepts come out in the book of Hebrews, but it does so in almost a poetic or a magnificent way. The sounds of the words, the use of the words, the arrangement of the words in Hebrews is so beautiful. It's so unbelievable. And so it's written by and to, most likely, Hellenistic Jews. What does that mean? Ones who are very much well-versed in the Greek language and even the Greek culture, but they were Jewish. They may have come, original source from Alexandria, where that was the center of Hellenistic Judaism. That's where we got the Septuagint, was from Alexandria. So that's what he's talking about here. So he says, addressing Hellenistic Jewish Christians who seem to have been vulnerable to reports of the lavish cultic expressions of worship in Jerusalem. I mentioned this earlier. Remember, in theological teaching, the term cultic doesn't necessarily have a negative connotation. It doesn't mean like a Mormon or Jehovah Witness or Moonies. It means organized religion with its set of practices, whatever they may be. That's the term. So they may be vulnerable to say, look at what they've got. They've got this beautiful temple and they've got the, the garb, the priest with his ephod and the beautiful things that happen, the smells, the bells and pomp and circumstance and pageantry. Who wouldn't want to be involved in that? What do we got? Oh, we get together in a home with seven or eight Christians and we praise God. Big deal. Okay. Well, it is a big deal. And so he's saying this. Lane is saying they may be vulnerable to maybe a negative comparison. And who, quoting Lanian, who are feeling impoverished by the relative simplicity of the worship within the New Covenant community, and especially by the loss of the sacred fellowship meals, the writer responds from a theology of praise. He invests their whole existence, renewed by grace, with the value of authentic devotion to God. He does so by calling the community to a new cultic, this again using the term technically, response to God as opposed to the old while emphasizing its appropriateness, its spiritual character, and its effectiveness. The striking feature of 15 and 16 is the rich use of Old Testament sacrificial terminology. Wow. Well, you know, what do you have? Well, I mean, honestly, go back to the day of Pentecost. The people who didn't believe Peter, what did they have? They had the day of Pentecost. They had the pilgrim feast. They had the pomp, the circumstance. What did the church have? The new saved group that gathered together. They had devotion, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. So they have a simple worship. And they lack the assets to have their own temple with all of its services and pomp and circumstance. All they had was one another and the means of grace. Dear friends, thank God for what we have. Don't be in awe that some, somebody else had more money or more magnificent whatever. We have praise to God. One another, to, whereby we do acts of love and service and authentic worship that's honoring to God. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, sacrifice of praise. Maybe somebody, uh, Brian, you could look this up. Psalm 50 and verse 14. Offering up the sacrifice of praise. 
Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. God is honored when we call on him on the day of trouble and when we offer up praise. God wants us to do that. Isn't that awesome? Sometimes we need to be reassured. Psalm 22, 22. Um, Steve, could you look up Psalm 22, 22? Now, Psalm 22 is Messianic, so this is Christ. Okay, Psalm 22, 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Okay, so the suffering, the sufferer, I should say, in Psalm 22, which we know to be Messiah, is offering up praise to God. This was common in the lament literature of the Old Testament, that they would tell how bad it is and how much suffering they had, but in the end, they made a vow to praise God. It didn't stop them from offering praise. Likewise, dear brothers and sisters, you and I gather, and we may have various degrees of bad things that happened in the last week. Okay? But we can offer up together praise to God. And it's acceptable to him. And we can commit to offering up praise to God and to carry for one another. Brian, you were talking about this on the way in. I need, he said, more of this. The weak tends to harden us as we hear all the evil going on in the world. It sure does me. I get so sick of it. And Diane says, well, then quit watching. (laughs) Well, but I want to see what's going on. I don't know. (laughs) It's so bad. But we get here together and we're reminded that we come to offer up a sacrifice of praise. Uh, Rich, make sure it's not for him. This is such a gospel issue. This is so central to the gospel. Before, before I knew the gospel, it was in my Christian walk, as it were, it was, well, what do I need to do today to please God? You know, what do I need to do today? And uh, I think that what you're saying here and what I'm gathering here is that with the gospel and understanding the gospel is that it's what Christ has done for us. Yeah. And giving him praise and reflecting on what Christ has done for me. Um, you know, before I knew the gospel, I was like, well, I accepted Christ. I did this. I made a decision. No, I need to live up to that decision. But in this, is like, here's what Christ has done for me. Praise God for what he's done for me. So it's so much more about just being thankful, having a heart of gratitude. And that's good enough. That's good enough. Uh, that, that's a good summary of the book of Hebrews, Rich. The book of Hebrews is all about what God has done for us. And then the admonitions and the warnings are grounded in that. And here we have what God has done. And then through him, then let us. Here is the let us. Here's what we ought to do because of what God did. Praise God and share with one another. Now, isn't that a simple Christian life? I keep going back to Naaman. Remember, he was offended because Elisha didn't have a very complicated plan. Go dip in the Jordan. So he wasn't going to do it. I agree with you, Rich. And I noticed that the last four or five years I was in seminary, it took me a long time because I was only taking one class at a time. We went from just grounding in solid Christian theology to people management. All right, And if I watch people coming to the seminary and graduating, they were all interested in getting a job being some form of a people manager. And it struck me that not only are they going to be people managers, many of whom they hardly knew any theology or even hardly knew the Bible because they were fellow students, so it was easy to assess that. Everything was about decisions, Okay, so as you were saying, you make the right decision, and now everything after this is making more right decisions, and it's our job 
to help you make right decisions. And everything rests on moment by moment, making decision, making decision, making decision, making decision. And if you're a husband whose wife isn't happy with him, they get you in and they say, well, what decisions did you make? Make the right one. That's everything. And that's what they were being trained for in seminary. But they're not trained in theology to explain the truth of, say, the book of Hebrews, of the cleansed conscience, as being having a right conscience before God and having your sins forgiven and being able to offer up acceptable praise and doing good and sharing. That's what we do. That's our right decisions. It's not that complicated. And I found that it's a lot easier just to use biblical categories and do binding and loosing. Is this something through Scripture you're bound? In other words, if the Bible binds us to something, then it's not our decision. We, need, we know what God's mind is. Or if it's something in which we are loosed, which case we can make our decision. Whatever it is, we're free and it's part of Christian liberty. That's how I look at all decisions, binding and loosing. Most of them are under the topic of Christian liberty. And there's no use being angry about the people around us, be it family members or somebody else, if they're making decisions within what's loosed. Okay? They don't, they're not here to please us. Our son announced that they want to move to Florida. Instead of getting mad, I just started doing, doing categories. Is it a sin to move to Florida? <laughs> uh, no. Well, then that's their decision. There's no use me being mad. There isn't a right or a wrong one. There's just a free one. And God's providentially in charge. Okay, so um, our high priest has already done it all for us. And we're called to praise God and not to neglect doing good. And one of the things that's really interesting is that in Psalm 22, it's Jesus who's pledging to praise God. So the implication of this is we are joining Jesus in praising. Wow, isn't that exciting? We're joining not only the heavenly chorus, but Christ, the champion, the author and finisher of, of our faith, who glorifies God in the presence of the congregation, according to Hebrews 2.12, and we are joining him. Our sacrifices of praise and works of love honor the one who saved us. Bring the mic to Eric. I want you to stand and aim the base of the mic at this receiver here. I finally figured out why it was cutting out on us. How, how's that? Oh, yeah. See that? You Good. Got it. We got it. You know, I was thinking about how important, and you mentioned it, Rich, this idea of gratitude is. And you think about the garden. In the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve have everything. They can Amen. eat of every tree except one, and Amen. they think it's outrageous. And so the lack of gratitude for what they do have leads them to sin. And so here you see the expression of we have salvation and Messiah. We have all that we need. And so what's the result? It's gratitude. And so it's really a reversal of the attitude that brought Adam and Eve and the world into sin. Exactly. And so when we read Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 about a cleansed conscience, if we can't respond in gratitude, I don't know when we will. All right. Would we rather have a defiled conscience? Would we rather be in bondage to our own sin without forgiveness? So we need to be thankful. Thank you, Eric. That's exactly right. Peter! I told you I was going to get here. Now we saw passages in Hebrews that teach the priesthood of every believer because we offer up priestly service. Now it's said explicitly, and Luther quoted this one, extensively 1 Peter 2 4 and 5 and coming to him that is Jesus as to a living stone which has been rejected by men 
This is an allusion to Psalm 118.22. But as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, plural, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Now, what is this holy priesthood that you're part of? What does it do? Offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. It's almost quoting Hebrews. Now, we might think, oh, that's no big deal. Yes, it is. We go and worship God and he accepts us as if we were priests who were fully prepared to be acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing that a sacrifice would be offered that's acceptable to God. And here in our case, it's our worship. We find this in Genesis 8, verses 20 and 21. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and then asked Noah about his carbon footprint. <laughs> oh, no, that's not what it says. I zoned out there. I was looking at that book that Dana has. No, no, let's, let's go back here and try that again. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I've done. So here is the offering that Noah offers is acceptable to God. Now, in the Old Testament, only under certain circumstances was that the case. But here, we can offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. I don't, how can I say this? I really don't think that a lot of contemporary Christians see how profound this is. They're looking for their own experience. Okay, I want to hear a loud rock band in church because it makes me feel good. I remember when I uh, met up with Chris Roseborough at the summit for peace plan out in Saddleback Church in 2008, full of Christian leaders from all over the world. And then we heard the last two and a half hours of Rick Warren. I was not impressed. No gospel, whatever. Then comes the worship service. Everybody's standing, and it was so loud. It reminded me of my youth when I used to go to rock concerts. It was so loud, but that wasn't, okay, so maybe that's what they need to do in their big auditorium. I don't know about that, but what we were singing about. And so Chris and I sat down, because we didn't want to participate, and Chris says, you know, I really hate singing about myself. Okay. It's a depressing topic. <laughs> but the Lord is an exciting topic. So we're offering up spiritual sacrifices as God's holy priesthood, and they're acceptable to God, and we're if we can look in Revelation and see what they're singing about, they were singing about redemption and atonement that was provided by the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. Now it says Psalm 118.22, that's the background for this rejected stone. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. But then it says, you also as living stones. So the foundation, the cornerstone, is Christ, who is rejected by the builders, that is the leadership of Israel, but became the chief stone. So you, little stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. We too are, I think by implication, rejected by the world, but we're built into a spiritual house. 
I have a great commentary on Peter from Thomas Schreiner, who, by the way, was at Bethel the early years when I was there. Thomas Schreiner says this, in particular, when the verb build, oikodomeo, is combined with house, oikos, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, the temple is often in view. The house is spiritual, pneumaticos, because it is animated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, says Schreiner. Despite the hesitation of some scholars, Peter clearly here identified the church as God's new temple. The physical temple pointed toward and anticipated God's new temple, and now that new temple has arrived, the oldest superfluous, and it's the believers themselves who are built in to the temple. And I want another point. Let's think about this. Who wrote this? Peter. Now remember the issue. In fact, I'll, I'll read that one. And let's talk about Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 18. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I thought somebody I was reading, I think Schreiner, made a very astute point. This is Peter interpreting Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. This is how Peter understood it. He was there. It was addressed to him. And Peter didn't later say, well, see, I'm the first pope. No, he didn't say that. This is what he interpreted it to mean. Christ is the chief cornerstone, and we, the church, are built up upon that as spiritual stones, a part of the rock. The gates of Hades, by the way, is an Old Testament figure of speech or idiom that means death. Death will not prevail over the cornerstone because he'll be raised from the dead, and death will not prevail over the church because we too will be raised. The gates of Hades isn't a reference to demons. It's a reference to death. Isn't that amazing? Wow. The word for offer is regularly used to denote the offering of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Spiritual sacrifices are required, meaning they are sacrifices offered by virtue of the work of the Holy Spirit. So here we have the same idea that we had in Hebrews. And you, you bring the mic to, to Eric. You don't have this hierarchical understanding that there are a few people at the top of the pyramid who are spiritual and the rest of us are just Christian drones that have no status or standing. That's not what it's saying here. You know, the, as Luther was correct, the people's protection from abusive religious authorities is the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. Eric. Amen. Well said, Bob. This is so exciting. You know, I, I, when I read this passage, it, it brings my mind back in the Tower of Babel. And so think about the Tower of Babel as mankind's attempt to build their own temple to God. And what they end up doing is every brick is the same. Remember, they're all sticky, ugly bricks. But the building then that God makes is the temple of Israel where his people come to worship. When they reject messianic salvation and they don't come to faith, the temple in Israel is called Babylon over and over. They're no better than the attempts for a salvation. And uh, then what we have here is God with us builds us not with sticky stones all built one after another, but notice we're living stones. We're fit together not by human effort, by the work of the Spirit. Amen. And so it's a beautiful reversal of what happened, sorry, in the... <laughs> at Babel. I got to chase the signal around the <laughs> Sorry room. about that. It's a reversal of Babel. All right, a reversal of Babel, he said... And I totally agree. And God fits us into his building. Amen? 
And every stone has its purpose and its place and is important to God. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And Babel would be the opposite of this. Now I'm going to introduce the next verse by this one, which is a reiteration. We went through this earlier about remembering. In 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2, Peter says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So as we gather, as they did in Acts 2.42, we are here to remember what God has done for us. And that's exactly what Hebrews is about. Jesus Christ did this, 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 and this. This is your cleansed conscience. This is your right standing. This is the faith that you have. These are the promises of God. Now, as we offer up the sacrifice of praise and share all good things with one another, we also remember what God has done. See, too many... American Christians conceive of the Christian life as progress from point A to, I don't know what point B is. You just go on and on and on with progress, and you forget why you ever were on the journey. I got a book out that I've been reading. I bought this when I was in seminary because it was on clearance. See, red sticker, that's good. Okay, and they must have discontinued using it in a class, I don't know. D.A. Carson is a general editor written by David Peterson, whose commentary on Acts I have. Possessed by God, a New Testament theology of sanctification and holiness. Eric, did you order this? He's going to order this. I'm just about done with it. I'm down to the last few pages. And it's outstanding, and it gives an overview of Hebrews. And it goes through really all the New Testament says about this topic and concludes that the New Testament never makes a strong chasm between justification and sanctification. That, in fact, in Hebrews, they're nearly the same thing. That by one offering, you're sanctified forever. And then he goes into Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, uh, elsewhere. Philippians really covers all the passage, Colossians, passages, Colossians. And our holiness is a state that we are in because if we were not, none of this would be true. In other words, if we weren't in a state of holiness, we couldn't offer up acceptable sacrifices to God. Uh, Peggy. Um, not very good at wording these things, but so are you saying there is no such thing as kind of a progressive sanctification where we're conformed to the image of Christ and we mortify the flesh? He talks about that in here, okay? And he he says there is such a thing or not? Well, he deals with all the passages that are used to prove it and frankly comes to the conclusion that the traditional teaching of progressive sanctification is not grounded in Scripture. And so, are you you agree with that? Well, so far, I agree with what I'm reading in this book. Is you can get it on Amazon, read it, and see if you agree. So, you know what I hear you saying about w- w- through one sacrifice of Christ, you know we're we're holy, but that's kind of positionally, right? I mean, we're justified at a point in time. But then there is a work that happens through the Holy Spirit to. Okay, so here's the debate that's raging right now. The work part of it is that synergism, so we do our part and God does His. And in which case, if that is true, is it true that if we screw up our part, the whole thing goes down to tubes and we're not ever glorified at the end? I don't know how to answer that, but it does. But the word does say that those who love God obey his commandments. So there's something there. And there's rewards um, that are given. So somewhere in there, there is 
that has to come into play someplace, right? Yeah, I would get the book and read it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, those who are the Lord's, that's what he means by possessed by God, we are the Lord's. Those who this is true of that we're uh, reminded, well, I've I got to go back a slide here, that we're living stones, we're part of the building, we're offering up spiritual sacrifices, we're sharing with one another. Some people who teach works righteousness, they'll give lip service to justification, but then the only thing they're interested in is do more, try harder. And they're suggesting that unless you hang guilt over the heads of Christians and pound on them and beat on them, they're going to run off into every kind of sin. Now, there's an issue with that. There's a problem with that thinking. For one thing, it causes pastors to pound on Christians mercilessly because they never do enough and they're never good enough. But aside from that pastoral issue, have you actually met someone who is excited about their status in Christ, that their conscience is cleansed, that their sins are forgiven, that they're part of the family of God, that they're living stones, that they're offering up sacrifices to God, and that they're sharing one another, who are thinking, I sure wish I could do every evil sin. Who's that? Are you sure we really do want to sin all we can? And who exactly is that that wants to sin all they can? The unregenerate. And so they're assuming all these Christians just are dead. They're just chomping into bed. I'm going to go sin. I want to go sin. I want to go sin. And as soon as the pastor quits teaching works righteousness, away they go, out to sin. I don't think that's the, the position portrayed, in, especially not in the book of Hebrews. Because our conscience is cleansed, we bring praise to God. I don't think Christians want to sin the more. Uh, Peggy, who's got the mic, okay? I agree with you, but I wonder, and I probably have to read the book, but I'm wondering where the scriptures, like, work out your, you know, your salvation with fear and trembling, how those fit into what you're saying, if you don't believe in a progressive sanctification. Uh, they work out just as it says right here. Our fear and trembling causes us to worship God and to preach the gospel and to encourage one another and to share with one another and to live a Christian life, this work out your salvation, that's like the patron, patron verse of the lawgivers, okay? And I've, I've heard that. I actually went to this, talk to this ministry who was using personal revelations to go back in the subconscious mind to find out things that supposedly happened. That was their verse. Everybody goes to that verse. But did Paul mean go to theophostic ministry? Go back in your subconscious mind. Obey human lawgivers beyond scripture. No, but we love to obey God's law and his righteousness, and we're free to do that. Right? Yes, we do. Exactly. And as I preach through Galatians, there's plenty in there about sowing and reaping. Sure, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he shall also reap. Uh, let us uh, do good. So the commandments are all there, but I'd say they're grounded in justification, not grounded in works. Okay, do more, try harder. That's where Carson, D.A. Carson and Peterson are disagreeing with the traditional view. Okay is that salvation is monergistic. God does it. Just sanctification is synergistic. And just like the synergy for Arminianism in salvation, man screws up his part, it'll never happen. Synergism and sanctification does the same thing. Now, what, what keeps us from teaching antinomianism uh, in this context, what te- the means of grace? I would presume, without I think, how would I say it, without being presumptuous, that if there is a church that wants to sin and maximize sin, 
that you got a serious problem. Okay? And as far as even understanding the gospel. I would also say that if we don't want sin in our lives, which we don't, we would come in faith in the promises of God according to Acts 2.42. And that God is using devotion, same word used in the Greek there is used for prayer, devotion to the word of God, fellowship of one another, breaking of bread, and prayer, these things are promises. They're attached with promises. Remember that chart I handed out? So by faith, we believe the promises, and God sanctifies us and continues to do so. Not unlike by faith, we believe that Christ died for our sins and he saves us. So it's by grace through faith on both ends. I have to think about that because, I, you know, I think about... First John and James, where it talks about the evidence of one who's really saved is obedience to the word, which results in the sanctification, right? So there's, I'm not exactly sure how those fit together, but it's one thing to believe and it's another to do. That's true. But why does the believer do? Because, because they have the spirit. You're getting pounded with guilt, 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 and if you do, you get rid of some of it? No, but... Because he believes the promises of God. Let me turn with me to 1 John. When Mike was teaching on this, I saw this in here because he's talking about the commandments of God. First of all, in 1 John 2, it talks about the command. Let me just read a few of these. We're running out of time. 1 John 2, 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing... You a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and true light is already shining. So the command is grounded in what's already true and what God's already done. Verse 9, the one who says he is in the light but hates his brother is in darkness until now. Now we still have the same issue of sharing. The one who loves his brother, verse 10, remains in the light, and there is no cause of stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in darkness, does not know where he's going because the darkness <laughs> blinded his eyes. Verse 12, look at verse 12 now. Little children, for John is the church. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. There's the foundation. See, when Chris Roseborough and I were out in, in California at Saddleback, I only heard two and a half hours. Chris heard four days. And when we finally got our meeting with Rick Warren, the first thing Chris said was, I've been here four days. I've heard everything you had to say about your peace plan. I've heard all of the speakers, and I haven't heard a single Word about the forgiveness of sins. And he says, you know, I'm not always, in fact, I'm not that great. I need to know my sins are forgiven. What do you have in your peace plan about forgiveness of sins? Nothing. So you're going to go all over the world with government, business, and church, do a three-legged stool, and you have nothing on the forgiveness of sins? See, dear ones, this is grounded in the forgiveness of sins. This and this is grounded in the fact that our, we're cleansed. Now, what is the command of God? Try harder, do more. Turn with me to 1 John three twenty-three. Here we know what the command of God is. And we can tell for earlier this, the command to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. 1 John 3, 23. Now, this is his command. Now, here's your definition, okay? That we believe in the name of the, his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. There's your definition. Same command is given in John 6, 29. What must we do to do the works of God? What does it say? 
believe in the one whom the Father sent. Maybe I've been just reading too much Luther, but I know I haven't been reading too much John. Okay? And he says what he says. Dear saints, I think we've been left dangling, thinking we didn't do enough or didn't try hard enough, when really what we want to do is know that we're pleasing to God and that we live in a way that would please him. And Hebrews is assuring us here that we can offer up sacrifice of praise and do not neglect doing good and sharing. And I don't believe that there is such a thing as forgiven Christians whose goal in life is to maximize sin. I never heard of such a thing. May it never be. May it never be. May Ganoita. Good one, Peggy. Let's close with prayer. We went over. Sorry about that. Heavenly Father, thank you for forgiving us and cleansing us and making us a priesthood and a holy priesthood that's built into a spiritual house that may offer up praises to your holy name. And as we go to do so even today, we know that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and filled by, with the Holy Spirit so we might give praise to your name without guile and without uh, longing for sin, but rather longing for righteousness. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.